Please stand for the reading of the Gospel. We read from John's Gospel, chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. After this, Jesus crossed over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he was performing on those who were sick. Jesus went up on the hillside and sat down there with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a huge crowd coming toward him, he asked Philip, Where can we buy bread for these people to eat? But Jesus was saying this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to have just a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what is that for so many people? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, so they sat down. There were about 5,000 men. And Jesus took the loaves, and after giving thanks, he distributed pieces to those who were seated. He also did the same with the fish, as much as they wanted. When the people were full, he told his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over so that nothing is wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with pieces from the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. When the people saw the miraculous sign Jesus did, they said, This really is the prophet who is coming into the world. When Jesus realized that they intended to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is the gospel of our Lord. We pray. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Your fellow redeemed friends in Christ Jesus, who is the bread of life. Of the many different reasons that the unbelieving world comes up with to mock and ridicule Christianity, one of the more common reasons is the one proposed or implied by our sermon theme for today. It sounds, it often sounds something like this. So let me get this straight. You, you Christians, you believe and you confess that God is all-loving and he's all-powerful and therefore he is able to help you and he will help you in every need you have in this life. All right, let's take that for a second then and tell me this. Why do you still have problems in your life? You Christians, why, why are your lives not that much different from ours? Why do you have health problems? Why do you struggle with finances? Why are your family's messes just like the rest of us? Why hasn't God come and solved all the problems in your lives? It, the only conclusion can be either he's not all-powerful or he doesn't really care about you. He doesn't really love you. Maybe you've heard such criticism of the Christian faith, or maybe you've even thought about it sometimes yourself, God, if you love me and if you're powerful, why aren't you helping me? And since that's a common question, a common criticism that we will face, it's, it's good that we're studying this, this very famous story about Jesus feeding the 5,000 because it gives us the opportunity to confront that question head on. Why does God cause problems in our lives? Now, I know that some of you may have been thrown by a curveball by that very question. You might even think, is that blasphemy to suggest that God is the one who sends problems into our lives? 
I thought the, the source of evil in our world, according to what I learned in confirmation class, was sin, uh, the devil, the world, and our own sinful flesh. And now you're telling me that God has a hand in the problems, the struggles, the troubles in my life? Well, I, I could cite countless passages from Scripture that, that testify to this fact that God does frequently send trouble, send problems into the lives of his people. Uh, just a couple examples would be uh, the, the Israelites wandering in the wilderness for 40 years or, or later on being exiled to Babylon for 70 years. But I don't even have to cite other sections of Scripture to prove this point. Our, our story right here proves that very point, right? Who caused this problem of hunger on that hillside by the Sea of Galilee? Jesus did. Jesus did. Jesus didn't have to let this problem happen. Uh, after our reading from last week, when the disciples were sent out on their first missionary journey, they came back, and Jesus had fully intended to take them across the, the Sea of Galilee to give them a little bit of a vacation, to give them a break, to let them rest. And so Jesus very well could have, as he saw the crowds coming, said, get out of here. It's, it's my week off. Okay, go away. Don't, don't bother us. But he, he, he didn't do that. He, he could have accepted the disciples' advice. In, in Luke's account, the disciples came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, you got to wrap it up, man. You got to say amen. You got to send these people home. It's getting dark. But, but Jesus didn't do that either. I suppose, theoretically, Jesus could have let his disciples in on the fact that he had a plan all along. He could have said, I know the people are grumbling, their stomachs are grumbling, but I got a plan. I'm going to take care of this. But he didn't do that either. What did Jesus do? Well, he created this problem of hunger, and then, and then what did he do with it? He, he delegated it. He, he looked at Philip and said, hey, Philip, where are we going to buy enough bread to feed all of these people? What does Philip do? Well, he does what I think any one of us would do. He uses his head. He does a little back-of-the-napkin math. He said, 200 denarii, a denarius is about one day's wages, so 200 days' wages wouldn't be enough to, to give all of these people even a mouthful. Uh, the 200 denarii, was that how much they had in the treasury at the point? I, I'm not sure, but uh, it, he's right, isn't he? 200 days' wages? I mean, that's nothing to laugh at, but 5,000 men add at least one child and one woman for each man. That's fifteen to 20,000 people. I don't know how much you make in 200 days. 200 days of my salary would not feed fifteen to 20,000 people. That's a lot of people. He's right. It's kind of like when, you know, in every marriage, one of the spouses pays the bills, and, and then they're, they're, they're doing the budget, they're paying the bills, and they go to the other spouse and say, uh, honey, we're not going to be able to cover all of these bills this month. Accurate, not helpful, though. That's kind of what Philip was. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, took a little different tact. It seems like he went off exploring, trying to find a solution to this problem of hunger. Now, what he was expecting to find, I'm not really sure. I don't, I don't know if he was expecting to go down the hill and see like a fleet of food trucks down there, or if he was going to maybe go over the next hilltop and there would be a Costco right there. I'm not sure what he was expecting to find, but all he found was a boy with five loaves of bread and two fish. 
The disciples had struck out. They had tried to find their own solutions to this problem of hunger, a problem Jesus himself created, and they couldn't do it. They didn't have any solutions. So what's the point of that? The point is, and this, this pains me mightily as a man to admit this, but the, it, the point is that not every problem is there for us to solve. Right? We men, we think we can solve everything. Pastors, we think we can solve everything. Not every problem is there for us to solve. Sometimes God puts problems in our lives for a different reason, to test us. And that's not new. Remember, right before God put a big problem in Abraham's life by commanding him to sacrifice his only son Isaac, who would, who would be the forerunner, a descendant of the Savior, Scripture tells us explicitly God was testing Abraham in doing that and telling him to do that. Or think about when the Israelites came back after their wandering in the wilderness. Moses reminded them what this was all about. He writes this in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Remember the whole journey on which the Lord your God led you these 40 years in the wilderness in order to humble you and test you, in order to know what was in your heart whether or not you would keep his commandments. This testing, this being put on the spot, being put under pressure, it's a testing, right? For who, though? For whose benefit do we undergo these tests? Well, in a school, who, who benefits from the test? Why, why do you have tests? Any teacher worth their salt ought to know where their students are in relationship to one another. Testing is not for the teacher. The testing is for the student. God knows what's in our hearts. He knows everything about us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. Who doesn't know ourselves? Who, who doesn't know what's in our hearts? We don't. We don't. Jeremiah wrote that the heart is deceitful above anything. It is beyond cure. Who can understand it? And so sometimes the problems that God sends into our lives serve to test us, to show us what we really are, to show us what we wouldn't otherwise see about ourselves. And and what is it that God shows us when he puts us in that pressure cooker of, of problems in our lives? It's pretty ugly, I'll have to admit, at least personally. When I have to examine myself, under the pressure of problems, I realized that I break the first commandment far more often than I ever realized. I, I, I realize I, I make the same mistake, I commit the very same sin that Philip and Andrew do when, when there's a problem, and the solution standing right in front of me. Jesus is a solution, but you know what I do? I go to my head, I do my math, I, I, I figure out my strengths. I try to come up with any other solution other than the one who's right there in front of me. I avoid Jesus, and I break the first commandment, not placing my full trust in him, trusting rather in myself. It's sad, isn't it? It's shameful that we think that way. Sure, Jesus, you may have been able to handle and conquer sin, death, and the devil in one fell swoop, but what do you know about 401Ks and viruses and family dysfunction. 
Sure, Jesus, maybe you could create the universe with a word and feed a multitude with a boy's lunch. But what do you know about marriage? What do you know about raising children? What do you know about living in the 21st century? Life is so much more complicated now. It's almost laughable that we think that way, isn't it? That we would think the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the Creator of the world is too small for our momentary earthly troubles? And yet, isn't that exactly what problems reveal? They show the problems in our lives, especially the ones that that these hands can't handle, they show us that while maybe we come here and we, and we think we're singing, uh, he's got the whole world in his hands, I'm actually living my life out there singing, I've got the whole world in my hands. And you don't realize that until God sends some problem into your life that your hands, your tiny little hands can't handle. You're just applying this on a global scale today. I, could that possibly be what this pandemic is all about? From the beginning, there have been experts and politicians who have said, we've, we've got this. We'll come up with a solution for it. What, 15, 16 months later, every solution, all the money spent, all the wisdom in the whole world, and are we turning back to where we were? Could God maybe not be saying, here, here's a problem I want you humanity to solve. Could he be saying, you stop thinking that you're God and trust that I am? Could that be the message of this worldwide pandemic? Don't believe that you have all the answers, because you don't. Just let me put a little virus in you and see how helpless you really are. That's the first thing that, that the problems God puts in our lives helps us understand. Understand ourselves. How small, how weak, how arrogant we often are. Not every problem is there for us to solve. And John tells us that Jesus didn't make this problem for Philip to solve. He says explicitly, Jesus was saying this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. And right there, there's another answer, another reason why God sends problems into our lives. You ever find yourself backed into a corner with no way out? stuck between the proverbial rock and a hard place where there, there's nowhere f- for you to go, no one to turn to, no answers in sight. There just doesn't seem to be a way out of your problem. We've all been there. God is never in that position. God is never limited. And maybe that's another thing that the problems in our lives help us to understand is, is that God isn't like us. God isn't limited. He's not in a box. See, Philip and, and Andrew, they were in a box, right? They, 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 they used all the resources they had at hand. Philip used math, and Andrew used his exploratory skills to try to find some answer, and, and they couldn't solve it. And so their conclusion was, there is no possible solution to this problem. There is no way that we are ever going to be able to feed these people. They're forgetting something, though, weren't they? Weren't they forgetting the words of Isaiah chapter 55? Certainly my plans are not your plans, and your ways are not my ways, declared the Lord. Just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my plans are higher than your plans. We don't dare put God into a box. I think maybe one of the reasons that we do is that we we take for granted the miracles that he does on a, 
a daily, weekly, annual basis. Just take the, the simplest item of food. Just take bread, for example. Do you realize what it takes for you to be able to make yourself a sandwich? It consists of putting tiny little seeds in the earth and a, a seedling sprouting and producing uh, exponential more seeds that, that have to be harvested and then processed and then baked and delivered to your table so that you can make your sandwich for lunch. And if any of those things fail, you don't get fed, you don't eat your bread. That's a miracle that, Jesus, that God is, is doing every single day. And yet, how often do we take it for granted? Well, I think we take it for granted right up until the point where God throws a, a curveball into the mix, where something goes wrong, where the science of us being able to say, yeah, that's just nature. You put a seed in the ground and a plop, a, a, a loaf of bread appears on your table. Look at the droughts that have been hurting the West. Go to the store and see how much the cost of food has risen in the past several months. When something goes wrong, then you realize what a real miracle it is that God provides food, yes, even though we have a better understanding of where it comes from. What's the point of this? The point is that even as we shouldn't think that we can solve every problem, we shouldn't ever think that we have an understanding of all the solutions. We shouldn't think that we can put God in a box of our own understanding, that he is limited to doing what we think he can do, because he's not. He always does much more than we can think or imagine, right? In fact, he, he often works in, in ways that are opposite of our thinking. Andrew was convinced. Five loaves of bread, two fish, fifteen to 20,000 people. That ain't going to do it. Jesus said, just watch. And he did the miracle. And you, you, you understand the miracle is not described there? One of the church fathers said, it's the height of wisdom when something is indescribable to not try to describe it. So I'm not. There's nothing to describe here. God or Jesus fed 15 to 20,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. He did the impossible. And he did it counter to human reason. And he always is working that way, Right? He's working that way regularly. He kills us with the law so that he can bring us back to life with the gospel. He, he threatens us with the fires of hell so that we would cling to his gracious promise of heaven. He is the strongest in our lives when we are at our weakness, as Paul said, right? His foolishness the foolishness of Jesus Christ crucified for sinners is, is wiser than all the wisdom in the world, wiser than all the philosophers who have ever lived. God is always working in contradictory ways. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't when, when the problem comes into your life, don't ever imagine that it's your right to tell God how to solve your problem. Because you're, you're going to have this box into which you're going to try to fit God. And he, he won't fit in that box. He will solve your problem. He will fix it in his own way and in his own time. So when problems come into your lives, you learn those two things. You learn a little bit about yourself, how, how you've broken the first commandment frequently, how weak and powerless you actually are. You learn something about God, that his ways are far beyond our understanding. And finally, we learn something about 
Jesus Christ, who he is and what he came to do. You saw that the crowd thought they had figured out who Jesus was and what he should do. They were going to crown him king. They called him the prophet who was to come, and that sounds good. But you notice when they came to that conclusion. It wasn't after Jesus had just fed them with the bread of life that is the gospel. It was only after he had fed them actual bread, after, they, after he had filled their bellies. And you know what was going through their minds, right? Here's the guy we've been waiting for. Here's the guy who's going to write me a stimulus check every month. Here's our welfare king. Here's the one who's going to pay me to sit at home and not work. Sounds tempting. Sounds strangely familiar. And yet, isn't it humbling to realize that that's often the Jesus that we've been looking for and longing for? You know, if you read your Bible on a daily basis and you come here on a regular basis, you realize that, that just like Jesus did on that hillside on the Sea of Galilee, he comes to us every day. He'll, he'll come to you from sunup to sundown, bringing you the gifts of heaven, the forgiveness of sins, new life and salvation, the promise of eternity. And yet, what are our prayers all too often filled with? What kind of Jesus are we looking for? What kind of king do we want? Jesus, solve my problem right now. Solve this thing that I'm struggling with right now. Solve whatever issue is in my life right now. And if you just do that, then I too will hail you as king. We, just like that crowd, we're so fixated on the here and now that we lose sight of the bigger picture that Jesus came to give us so much more. Because he didn't come to be a bread king. He didn't come to be a welfare offering savior. He didn't do it then. That's why he went away from then. That's why he walked away. And he's certainly not going to do it today. He came to do so much more. He didn't just come to feed you, feed your bellies. He came to feed your souls. And that required so much more than just feeding a couple thousand people on one afternoon by the Sea of Galilee. Feeding your soul, solving your real problem of sin, death, and the devil, that required him to lead a perfect life, one where he never broke the first commandment. He always acknowledged that God was God, and so was he, but he humbled himself under God the Father. You, you notice how he prayed? He, he performed this miracle with his own power, but he prayed to his Heavenly Father, thanking him for the gift of this food. He had to lead that perfect life because we haven't, and then he had to take our sins to the cross where he had to die the death of the damned so that he could offer us eternal life. That's what Jesus came to do. He didn't just want to keep you alive today. Whatever issue you're struggling with today, he could solve it, but that would only help you today. What about tomorrow's problems? What about next week's problems, next year's problems? Jesus came to solve your eternal problems. He doesn't want to be your Savior for today. He wants to be your eternal Savior. And that becomes very clear when you consider what he does for us still today. The miracles that he still does for us today. The things that he left us yet today. He didn't leave us with factories and warehouses full of bread for our bellies, but he did leave us with the bread of life which feeds our souls. He didn't give us enough water to always quench our thirst, but he did give us the water of baptism which washes away our guilt. 
He didn't leave us with a book of life hacks and tips and tricks for how to make life easier and simpler and smoother in this world. But he did give us the absolution, which takes care of the problem of sin once and for all. And what's the problem with those things? Why don't more people flock to receive those eternal gifts that solve our real eternal problems? I think because they don't look like miracles to us. When I baptized Liam just a couple minutes earlier, you didn't see him glow with the righteousness of Christ. And yet Paul says that as many of you have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. He is now sinless in the eyes of God, even if he fills his diaper and screams. He is holy in the sight of God. When, when you step up here to receive Holy Communion, you don't see with your eyes the fact that Jesus is coming and, and picture him like a waiter. He's looking like a waiter and he's bringing you a meal straight from the wedding banquet in heaven. You don't see that, but that is true. That is what this is. It is a meal from heaven for your eternal salvation. When you hear the absolution, I know you don't see some giant eraser erasing all of the sins that you've ever committed. But that is what Jesus says happens. He says to his disciples, when you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. When we understand the true nature of the miracles, even this miracle of feeding the 5,000, it tells us a lot about Jesus. He is fully capable of taking care of all of our day-to-day needs, and he does. Just think of how, how well off we are, how much we have to be thankful for, but that's not the real reason he came. He came to solve our eternal problems of sin, death, and the devil. And by the miracles that he still does here for us today, he proves that about himself. If you have problems in your life, there's a good chance God has a hand in them. And here are three things that you can take away from your problems, three things you can know about them. They tell you something about yourself, how weak and powerless you actually are, how how little control you actually have. They tell you something about God, that, that his ways, his solutions are so much grander than anything you could ever imagine. They tell you about Jesus, what he really came to do and who he really is. And think about this. If that's where the problems in your life, even the really bad problems in your life, lead you, that's no problem at all. Amen.